Welcome to the Five By, your bi-weekly source for rapid-fire board game reviews and a proud member of the Inside Voices Network. In this episode, Ruth paints spring cherry blossoms with Sakura. I get political in 1960, the making of the president. Calvin visits the track with Pit Crew. Mason explores the wonders of antiquity in Seven Wonders Duel. And Mike gives citrus growing a try in Citrus. Before we get started, we have a favor to ask of you. Visit survey.5bygames.com and let us know what you think of the 5 by. One entry per person, please, and one lucky winner will receive a $100 gift card to their online game store of choice. But really, when you help us by sharing your feedback about the 5 by, aren't we all winners? Again, that's survey.5bygames.com. Now, let's paint those cherry blossoms. Hello, 5 by listeners, it's Ruth here talking about a game that's grown on me. A few months ago, Osprey Games sent me a copy of their 2018 release, Sakura, designed by Reiner Knizia. Honestly, after reading the rules, well, I wasn't sure. The game is beautiful, but I'm not always a huge fan of Knizia, and the rules suggested a chaotic experience that reminded me of Y First. And while Y First is a game I enjoy, I didn't think I needed another version of it. After playing Sakura, however, it's won me over. With more strategy than I initially thought, and being unpredictable enough to be ideal for when I need a quick playing casual experience. In Sakura, two to six players take on the role of artists attempting to capture the best portrait of the Emperor as he moves through the garden. However, their subject moves unpredictably and only stops to admire the titular cherry trees. This means that each painter is vying to be closest to him when he stops in order to capture the scene. But since everyone has the same goal and isn't above throwing some elbows, artists who get too close run the risk of bumping into or being pushed into the Emperor, and doing something that impolite is never going to end well. Each round, players select a card from their hand to reveal simultaneously. Cards feature three important pieces of information, two of which relate to movement and are found in the top left corner of the card. The first icon determines how either the Emperor or the artist furthest ahead or behind the group will move. The icon specifies a number of spaces along with a direction, either forwards, backwards, or player's choice. The icon below this similarly relates to movement, but that of the painter who played the card. In addition to similar options as previously described, this card might otherwise specify that the player simply leapfrogs the artist in front of them for a better view, or moves a number of spaces equal to the number of artists in front of them. If at any point in a painter's movement they hit the emperor, or if he moves into them, while well, they lose a token and immediately scuttle back three spaces to escape the Emperor's Wrath. So it's important when choosing a card to play to think about when it's going to resolve. And that's where the third piece of information comes in. The cards are numbered 1 through 60, and will resolve from lowest to highest number. As the Emperor winds his way through the garden towards the shrine, he'll pass over two Sakura spaces. Each time he reaches one for the first time, he immediately stops to admire the cherry blossoms. The round ends, and all unresolved cards are discarded. Players assess who's closest to the scene and thus has the best angle for their painting. That player earns three tokens, while the players further behind them may or may not earn tokens depending on player count. A new round then begins, with players choosing more cards to continue the walk. When the Emperor gets to the shrine at the end of the path, this will signal the end of the game. The shrine is resolved like another Sakura space, only with slightly more valuable rewards, and then players count up their tokens and declare the winner. Similar to Gravwell, which I talked about a couple of weeks ago, 
Sakura is a game of program movement where you fervently hope the other players aren't going to completely destroy your plans. While players do get bumped back and lose points, with the game being so bright and colorful it doesn't feel mean, especially since it's hard to target particular players. And since positions change quickly, you don't really feel like being bumped is putting you out of contention. Really, the constant back and forth movement of the artist just nicely models a crowd vying for the best spot to see the action, and really brings out the theme in what's otherwise an abstract game. Despite the chaotic card resolution, I still feel while playing Sakura as though I have some degree of control. I can decide based on card number whether to try and resolve early, or take a chance on where everyone will be later in the round. And I did better after getting more than one play under my belt, reassuring me at least that my decisions were meaningful. Sakura is a game about weighing up risks and knowing when to take a chance, and with its short playtime, I'm okay with taking a gamble on a seemingly terrible choice that could be amazing if somehow it actually works out. Presented in a book-style box reminiscent of Odin's Ravens, Osprey has put as much care into Sakura as they did with that title. The cards shuffle well, although they do stick together easily, so you'll want to check that players are only getting a single card. Tokens are substantial enough to hold up to repeated plays, and the wooden pawns are satisfyingly chunky, with an elegant design reminiscent of chess pieces. But what really grabs your attention is the fact that the cards, board, and box all feature gorgeous art from Kevin Hong. Everything's vibrant and colorful, and I love his depictions of the serene emperor simply ignoring the jostling crowd behind him. I will note that at least in my copy, the board is determined not to lay flat, so I end up having to gently fold it back before every play, which does get a little old, but it's a minor thing overall. On first reading the rolls, I wasn't sure if Sakura had a place on my shelves, but at least for now, I'm keeping it around. It's a delightful romp through the garden, with players trying to fight for position without hurting their own chances through their eagerness to get ahead. Gameplay is light, quick, and most importantly, fun, and the whole thing is just another gorgeous Osprey production, guaranteed to catch the attention of passers-by. Now I'm off to check out the spring flowers, at least if the rain has finally stopped, but if you try Sakura, feel free to let me know how it went. You can find me at SequentialGamer, .wordpress.com or on Twitter at Roof. That's an R, four O's, and an F. Thanks for listening. When I first played 1960, The Making of the President, I had no idea that it was a rethemed, somewhat simplified version of the revered area control game Twilight Struggle. All I knew was that it was a two-player game about the 1960 presidential election between Richard Nixon and John Kennedy. And that's all I needed to know. I'm a politics junkie. I've worked on four presidential campaigns. I have an inaugural ticket hanging on my wall. Presidential politics mean a lot to me. A game that follows the 1960 campaign? I had to play it. And when GMT published a gorgeous new edition in late 2017, I had to own it. Designed by Christian Leonard and Jason Matthews and originally published in 2007, 1960 The Making of the President lets two players take on the roles of Nixon and Kennedy in the 1960 presidential election. The players campaign across the nation, vying for control of enough electoral votes to win the presidency. Control is represented by red and blue wooden cubes. And yes, I know that red for Republicans and blue for Democrats is a modern convention that's anachronistic for 1960. It's meaningful to players today, so it works for me. You place cubes on a state to represent leading in that state, or remove your opponent's cubes to erode their lead. Each state can only have cubes from one player at a time, so there's a constant back and forth as you fight for control of key states. The heart of 1960 The Making of the President is the campaign deck, a large deck of cards, each of which shows a real historical event from the campaign. The cards are lovingly detailed, with photos from the time. Campaign cards can be played as events or for points, 
or set aside for later use in the debate and election day special rounds. A cards event will be an action you can take, sometimes conditional based on other events, the state of the board, and so on. Some events can be played by either candidate, while others benefit only Nixon or only Kennedy. The cards also have points printed on them, which represent the number of cubes you can use to campaign in states or build up media support or issue support. There's a wonderful feeling of pressure in 1960, the making of the president, of trying to use every single card as efficiently as possible. There's so much you need to do, and the mechanisms interlock so elegantly that you really can't ignore anything, and you have just a few cards each round to try and do it all. Almost the entire campaign deck gets played in each game, and the timing of when a card comes out can be crucial to how to use it. This is one reason why I think 1960 The Making of the President is best played with someone at a similar skill level to yourself that you can learn the game with together. A player who knows that deck, knows how to use each card and which cards to look out for, will be at a significant advantage. My second time playing this game, on my last turn in the last round, I used all my campaign points to win a narrow lead in New York, which is a critical state with the most electoral votes of any state on the map. My opponent then used her last turn to play Swing State, a card that allowed her to pour campaign points into a single state if I was leading it by a small margin. If I'd known the deck better, I would have known that card existed, would, I hope, have noticed that it hadn't come out yet, and wouldn't have set her up to use it and take an insurmountable lead in New York. That one mistake likely cost me the game. But we were both new to it. That took the sting off. I can imagine how bad I would have felt if I'd done that against an opponent who knew the game inside and out. I do have to talk about one negative in 1960, The Making of the President. The rulebook is detailed, well-written, and uses only male pronouns throughout. I'd give them a pass if the pronouns referred to Nixon and Kennedy, who were, of course, both men. But the rules are explicit about referring to the Kennedy player rather than Kennedy the candidate. Regardless of intent, the constant use of he and him sends a message that only men are expected to play this game. And come on, this rulebook was rewritten in 2017. That is inexcusable. Okay, enough negatives, back to the positives. I love the art design by Roger McGowan. It gives the GMT edition a retro feel that evokes the era of the 1960 election while still feeling crisp and modern. And I love the history imbued throughout the game. The notes on the cards, the photos, even the electoral map reminds me how the political landscape has changed since 1960. For instance, I often find myself thinking of Florida as a key swing state that I must campaign in. Then I look at the map and remember that in 1960, Florida had only 10 electoral votes. That's not nothing, but it's not that much. Just another reminder that 1960 politics are not 2018 politics. Although the historical theme is extremely well realized, this is not some shallow thematic game. 1960 The Making of the President is a knife fight. It is strategic and competitive. In every game I've played, we've had to reassure each other that it's okay to play a card that feels like a real jerk move. Just like real presidential politics, you can't win by going easy on your opponent. 1960 The Making of the President is a good game that rewards thought and patience and with the deeper understanding of repeat plays becomes a truly great game. My name is Sarah, and when I'm not losing the first televised debate because I wouldn't wear makeup, you can find me on Twitter, at Sarah Ovenall. If you summed up most of the dreams that I had when I was a kid, the vast majority of them involved going really fast. Astronaut, Jedi Master, Race Car Driver, Neo from the Matrix. Pit Crew is a card game about going really fast, but not just as the race cars, but also as the pit crew, making sure your tires are changed, your fuel is injected, 
and your engine's up to spec before the car goes tearing off the track once more. From a thematic point of view, this game by Jeff Engelstein, artist William Brickler, publisher of Stronghold Games, seems like it should be an absolute knockout winner, right? What's not to love? Everybody loves the pit crew, they're the unsung heroes. It's a new spin on an interesting topic, it's got race cars in it, what's not to like? Turns out, quite a lot, unfortunately. In Pit Crew, you and your friends form teams to fix up the cars and do it as fast as you can. You do this by playing cards from a very small hand and trying to communicate with each other what you need. Okay, these need to be in sequential order going up. So if I play a 5, you need to play a 6, then we play a 7 and then play an 8. But these over here need to be pairs. These over here need to add up exactly to 27. And sometimes whether the card is white or black matters. Oh, oh don't forget your power up. And if you're the first team to finish prepping your car, off she tears down the racetrack with you frantically rolling the dice trying to push it forward one step at a time. If you get a six, it moves up one. If you get another six, it moves up one. Your other teams are like watching you speed off and you're like, come on, come on, come on, finish up, finish up, finish up. My friends and I are huge fans of the real-time genre. We love Five Minute Dungeon. We love XCOM. We love Captain Sonar. But Pit Crew just sort of felt off. Stilted. Didn't take off. See, Pit Crew is a great concept. Pit Crew has a great design, actually. I think it's a very smart way of trying to get people to work together as a crew, right? Because everyone has a small hand of cards, so you need to communicate what everyone needs and be heard over the other team shouting. But it's not the chaos that's the problem. Pit Crew only has one skill, and that skill is numbers. You need to be able to see, okay, those are the numbers that are on the table. What numbers do I have in my hand? What numbers do we need? What numbers need to get played? Oh my god, there's so many numbers to keep track of. Every time I've played this game, at least one team was really, really bad at numbers. Like we would be finished and we would be racing our car along the track and the other team would just be sitting there going, uh, okay, so do we need a six or, or a nine? Um, is it, a, is it, oh wait, so what's, what's 17 plus, plus six again? It's 23, no, 24. And for them, the game's just dead. You can't play it because in other real-time games, different players can have different roles. So if you're good at one particular skill in Captain Sona, for example, listening, then you'll be a fantastic radio operator. If you're really good at counting, you can be the central command officer at XCOM to make sure that nobody goes over budget because it's a critical task in that game. And if you're not really good at handling time pressure, 5-Minute Dungeons Wizard allows you to just pause the timer with his power so you just eliminate that type of play. Now, I'm bad at higher level math, but low level arithmetic, I can do really easily in my head. So when I was playing Pit Crew, I was having a great time. But like I said, every time I played, there was one group of my friends who wasn't having a great time. They were struggling and they couldn't, there was no role for them to play. They couldn't do anything. So it just, they just felt locked out of this experience. And it is such a shame because it's such a cool design. And I think that if you can get past this one block, Pit Crew is a fun game especially if you're a fan of NASCAR, if you're a fan of racing, if you like, you know, fun games that are light and easy to teach and easy to play, and you just go tearing off down the track and you shout at each other and you drink some alcohol and get a bit rowdy, it's going to be a great time. I think Pit Crew is fantastic as a small box, real-time experience that you can bring just about anywhere. It's just that it really, really doesn't work for the people it doesn't work for. And I'm sorry. I really respect Jeff Engelstein as a designer. I think his work on The Expanse is fantastic. By the way, if you want to pick that game up, that's a great game, but that's a completely separate episode. I have been Calvin Wong with the Ding and Den podcast. Thank you so much for listening to the Five Bye. And until next time, three, two, one, go. Hi, I'm Mason Weaver. Let's talk about Seven Wonders Duel. We're a two-player household, so I pay pretty close attention to player counts. They matter to me very greatly. 
We're also at the point of being almost completely out of board game storage in our house, so I'm always looking at box size as a function of a game's value in my life. So Seven Wonders Duel is, in a lot of ways, the perfect game for us. Small box, easy setup, two-player only, meaningful decisions, almost infinitely replayable, and emergent behavior against a regular opponent. Antoine Bowser's original Seven Wonders came out back in 2010, and it was one of the earlier games we played quite a bit when we got into hobby board gaming. It introduced the idea of pick-and-pass card drafting to us, and even though the two-player setup seems to be somewhat polarizing amongst other players, we liked it then and frankly still like it now. So when a two-player-specific version of the game came out in 2015, we were on it. Three years later, it's still one of our most played games, and I can't see ever not wanting to own it. It's one of the few games that either Megan or I will always play on a weeknight, no matter how exhausted or burnt out we are from work. A lot of my love for Duel comes from its intertwining knots of variability, replayability, those are two different things, we can talk about that some other time, and the shifting paths to victory. There's no dominant strategy to win. It's one of those, do a little bit of everything but make sure you do it better than your opponent kind of games. In Seven Wonders Duel, you take turns picking from a sort of overlapped pyramid thing of cards on the table. Some are face down, some are face up. When you take a card, it gives the other player access to the card that was beneath it. So some cards have resources on them which you can use to buy future cards. Some cards give you money, which you can also use to buy future cards. Some cards give you points, some cards let you move forward on the little military track. If you let your opponent get too many red military cards, they sack your city and you lose instantly. If your opponent lets you take too many green cards, your advanced sciences automatically win the game. There are multiple threads of tension pulling at you in every direction throughout Seven Wonders Duel, and I never get tired of playing it. So at the same time all these other decisions are happening, the four large wonder cards next to you still need to be built. By using your turn to take a card from the pool and slip it underneath a wonder, provided that is that you can afford the wonder, you've built that wonder and then get a reward. Sometimes it's money, sometimes it's points, sometimes it's extra building resources, and sometimes it is an extra turn. So timing out when you're going to build the wonder is really tough and can be a turning point in the game's arc. You're always racing a little, as only one of you will be able to build all four of your wonders, because there can only be seven wonders total, get it? There's this significant tension between progress and denial for both players. You want to get all the good stuff for yourself, but ignoring what the rival city is doing, building and buying is fairly critical if you actually want to win. At the beginning of the game, you get to look at all the science progress tokens, and you should draft your wonders based on what's available. Knowing from the start which tokens are available usually influences the wonders that I pick. There's a lot of these kinds of choices to make in Seven Wonders Duel. Now you could absolutely play and enjoy the game without taking any of these emergent or interdependent elements into consideration. But, when you've played it dozens and dozens of times with the same person, the meta really becomes part of the game. At this point, I know which wonders and which strategies Megan favors, so part of our shared experience of playing Seven Wonders Duel together is blocking each other at every step. The meta has kept the game fresh because it forces each of us down paths that we wouldn't otherwise choose. Now, the long-term replayability of a game within the same group is not something that I talk about very often, but I do think it's a big part of what keeps me coming back to Seven Wonders Duel. In more static games, or games with zero input randomness, two people playing the same game over and over together can fall into ruts that sap the joy out of the experience. There are games that we haven't kept because that's exactly what happened. But because the wonders, progress tokens, and resource cards will never come out in the same order, and I mean never, like it's not mathematically possible for you to play it enough times for that to ever happen in your entire lifetime, there are always new pathways to forge and new choices to make in the tug-of-war of Seven Wonders Duel. The box size for Duel is my favorite, Cosmos 2-player, or 8x8 uh, inches or 20x20cm. The cardboard coins, tokens, and military track are all high-quality linen finish. For some reason, though, the cards, at least in my edition, are not high-quality. They were so badly warped that I had to request a replacement set from Asmodee. The replacement set was also warped, 
so I chose to sleeve them. I went with Fantasy Flight Mini Euro sleeves, which are very thick and feel great and definitely worth the money. Unfortunately, they're also about 2mm too long for every card. Because this was totally unacceptable to me, I went to the trouble of trimming every single sleeve after I had the cards in them. Was this a huge amount of work? Yes. Was it completely worth my time? Absolutely. Now, Seven Wonders Duel also has an expansion called Pantheon. I was incredibly excited when it came out because we loved the game so much, but after a few plays, it stays in the box and I've honestly considered trading it off. It certainly adds another layer of gameplay, but not in a way that either of us really enjoyed at all. I wouldn't advise purchasing it until you've played Seven Wonders Duel dozens of times, and even then I would try before you buy. Despite my component issues, Seven Wonders Duel is of really good value, usually around $25 anywhere hobby games are sold online or out there in the world. So, who should buy Seven Wonders Duel? People who mostly play two-player games. People who like card drafting. People who like building up resources. People who like indirect conflict. And people who want the flavor of ancient history without the cognitive load of a complex civilization game. I give Seven Wonders Duel 7 out of 7 towering pillars of stone erected to honor the gods of our long-dead cultural predecessors. I'm Mason Weaver, and you can find me on Twitter at Discount Compost. Citrus is a brilliant and beautiful 2013 game from Jeffrey Allers, Clemens Franz, and DLP Games that is just finally getting a U.S. publishing after a long, twisted road thanks to finally getting picked up by Tasty Minstrel Games. Prior to that, you had to order a copy from Canada or overseas. I was happy enough to get my copy years ago from Board Game Bliss, but now that it's more readily available, I hope Citrus gets a little more recognition for the terrific game that it is. In Citrus, we are building out fruit plantations. You buy tree tiles from a central market and then either add them to an existing plantation around a farmhouse, known as a finca, or start a new plantation. It all sounds simple, but there's a lot to consider. First, there's building your plantations. You must purchase all the trees at the market in either a row or a column at one coin per tree. Tires are then placed next to fincas to start or expand your plantations. Each plantation must be contiguous and distinct. No mixing your lemons with your oranges or even your oranges with your blood oranges. As tires are taken, the market does not automatically fill back in. So, some rows get cheaper as they now have fewer trees, but maybe you don't want to risk it as the perfect trees for your plantation are already out. But then, how many trees does that leave? Because if your opponent empties the market, they get to choose the location of the next finca to be built, which I'll explain later, but it is a big advantage to them. But then they refill the market, which gives the player after them more choices. Fincas each act as a form of area majority, where once you have all 8 spaces around a finca filled in, that finca scores the points shown on it for the players with the most and second most plantation tiles around them, but only for the plantations that still have workers on them. Finca points are an important scoring opportunity, so if you can control where the fincas are built and build plantations across multiple fincas, that is certainly to your advantage. But other players can also block you out, either by physically blocking your path with their plantations, or because each plantation can only have one of each type of fruit tree growing, so you can't bring over your limes if someone already has limes at that finca. In addition to the fincas, there are other landscape tiles that give you useful things when you reach them with your plantations. Horses for points, money tiles, carts that give you one free market tile, bridges to cross rocks, milestones to build new fincas immediately, and a bowl that can be used to fill in around a finca or just to block someone else's plantation. There's also a mini expansion that I own that offers more landscape tile options and is currently available from the BGG Marketplace. Workers are used to claim your plantations as you build them. You aren't required to place a worker with each plantation you start, but the only way to get points are through completing fincas with your claimed plantations 
or harvesting a plantation by removing your worker and getting points for the tiles in that plantation. But of course there's a push and pull here as well. The more workers you have out, the less money you earn when you pull one back, so don't spread yourself too thin. As you can see, despite the simple mechanisms, there's a lot to consider in a game of citrus, which is exactly my kind of game. In addition to the depth, it would be criminal not to mention how beautiful this game is, as the brown dirt is slowly filled with vibrant greens, yellows, pinks, and oranges of the tree tiles. And while I have not played citrus with anyone who is colorblind, I appreciate that each tree tile type has a different tree configuration on it to help distinguish them from each other. So, Citrus plays 2 to 5, and while I would highly recommend it at 2 to 4 players, I would not recommend it at 5. At 5 players, it is an exceptionally tight game. The phrase, knife fight in a phone booth comes to mind. Except in this case, it's 5 people in that phone booth, all with knives. And if you're too young to know what a phone booth is, well, I can't help you. It just makes the game truly difficult to get anything going. Plantations remain very small, and everyone gets spread out with very little money or points coming in. I'm sure there are people who enjoy misery farming games, but I'm not one of them. Citrus is, for me, one of those games that is more than just the sum of its parts. With my family, it's a beautiful, peaceful game as we build out our farms, turning the brown desert into lush plantations. At game night, it's a cutthroat game of taking the pieces the other players need and blocking them out of the lucrative fincas. Either way, I guess I don't really feel the theme in a visceral sense, but I appreciate the theme, how it all works together, and feel like the game benefits from it. Like I said at the top, I really enjoy Citrus and I'm glad that it's finally available to a wider American audience. Jeffrey Allers has made a solid game and TMG should be commended for picking up what deserves to be an evergreen title for them. And those are my thoughts on Citrus. If you wish to discuss it further, or anything else for that matter, you're welcome to reach me on Twitter at Mike Risley. Thanks for listening to the 5 by if you'd like to follow us, please do so on Twitter at 5 by Games, or like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 5 by Games, or join our BGG Guild number 2810, or listen to the 5 by on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. You can find all of our links at 5 bygamescom The 5 by is a member of the Inside Voices Network. Find out more at InsideVoicesNetwork.com.